So when you when you uh, when you think of uh, deep learning, I know that uh, there was one computer scientist that said that you know they had the breakthrough with the twenty four layers, uh, but it's like if you have twenty four layers, you throw almost every known amount of data at it. Uh, it, it you, you have to have a huge, huge data sets. How do you guys get around having to have like a, you know every conceivable combination of data that you can possibly throw at the net? One of the big things is augmentation. So when we train these networks, they still see a large amount of data, but they're seeing repeats uh, that have been distorted. So they're, they're seeing, you, you can imagine with images, you add some noise, you change the contrast, you shear it, you rotate it, you resize it slightly. There's different things you can do to add noise. And you can do the same with audio as well. And so even if you have a small data set, from the net's perspective, it's still seeing millions of observations. But you and I know that it's just seeing repeated information, but just in a distorted or uh, changed format. That's pretty. That's pretty common. Um, one one thing I was looking at today was uh, they're, they're using uh, AI to do crime in, uh, investigation replay, and we were talking about how uh, you're able to. Do, do real-time analysis or near real-time. There was a time frame window that was open where you could do detection. Uh, and uh, it was kind of interesting. They did a, a, what they call a crime assessment risk analysis or something like that. And it was basically looking at the person's face and uh, looking to see certain uh, characteristics about their face and then also... Uh, it pulled in a large amount of information about their prior uh, history, criminal history, and then it made predictions whether or not they could be rehabilitated or uh, they would be you know, routed to uh, a prison system, mainly because uh, uh, there's been an overpopulation of, uh, in the, in the cr- criminal system. And so processing through that has overburdened the court system, so they're looking at more of this automated self-assessment. Yeah. Uh, and you were talking Submit. about something similar to that, where if you saw it saw something that it thought was fraudulent, you would send out an immediate alert, and that quick alert was um, an advantage to use the system. Yeah, we, um, so we do stuff with uh, remote cheating detection, like watching people take an exam and trying to predict when they could be cheating in the exam. And then we've also, I've, I've done stuff with inter- interviewing where using a computer, you can analyze a job interview to predict how well someone is doing on the interview and if they should be accelerated through the application process. So there, there's a lot of really exciting applications that we're seeing, but uh, one of the things I talk about a lot is there's an ethical consideration that has to be talked about because AI can learn things that you didn't expect. So it can learn racism. It can learn genetic biases. It can be sexist. It can do all these things. 
it can learn an age bias, it can learn a, a health-related bias. And so sometimes with deep learning, you you don't necessarily know what it learned, and that's why you need to understand what you're doing. That's what, it, um, that's what one of the, uh, I guess, had a former guest on, and he was saying that you have to be really careful with the net that you don't, that the data that's being fed to it is not a false positive. Or, or um, I guess what he was trying to say was, that it didn't, because uh, you don't know, it's almost like an N-hard problem, uh, figuring out what rules are going to be fed into the deep learning. So if you feed junk into the deep learning, it's not going to differentiate and say, hey, those, those rules are really inconsistent. They're incongruent. They should be put over here in uh, this cluster where it's like inconsistent rules. Um, so... One that he was bringing, he brought up was uh, a case where gorillas and then people with dark skin, Asians or, you know, Afro-Americans, where Google's system, TensorFlow, I think it was TensorFlow, couldn't detect uh, the difference between the two. And it's because it hadn't been trained on enough contrast. And so it, it grouped them together, and then it was, there was kind of this outcry, you know, hey, the nets are, are not differentiating right. Yeah, so there, those are there's two key things that, that are happening. So one of them is a data quality issue, where they didn't train on enough data to avoid that issue. But with race transfer, that's what happened with the Amazon's resume model. It actually had a, a gender bias. That's a different problem. That's there isn't a data quality issue. You have okay. good resumes, you have outcomes, but unfortunately your outcomes were sexist or racist. And so um, with the gorilla issue, I would say that's a data that's a data problem. They didn't train on enough data. But well, you can't really make the net fair, you know, even though there are people who are saying Hey, we want to make the net fair. It's discriminating based on uh, its signal processing, right? So it's going to detect a signal in the data. And so if the data itself reveals either a bias, how do you remove that out? So at higher view, we we're able to come up with ways to do this. So humans will always have biased data. So preventing humans from having racist data, sexist data, or some type of bias in the data is impossible. That will happen. But when you train these AI systems, you don't want them to amplify that or to exaggerate that. And so one of the things we did at Higherview was we were able to build up these processes where you could take um, a data set that did have a racial bias or a uh, a sexist bias and what you do is you reward the AI for demonstrating its ability to predict performance, but you also reward the AI for demonstrating its ability to not predict race or gender or age. Uh, so you're rewarding the AI for its lack of ability to maintain those differences. So the, a simple example that's easy to understand would be, suppose I'm feeding resumes in, and it turns out it's really easy for the resume to predict race and gender. 
And if you look inside the AI to see how is it able to predict race and gender, you'll find out you have the name in the resume. And so if I remove the name, it now becomes more difficult, but not impossible for AI to predict race and gender. So as you slowly go down that road, you'll find out eventually you can get to a point where it is nearly impossible for AI to predict race and gender. Does that make sense? Where AI is finding out which features allow it to predict these protected classes. And by removing that, that will block the bias transfer. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was talking to a data scientist, is an Indian fellow, and he was saying that sometimes in order to get the accuracy in machine learning to the 95 percentile that they needed, they went to like ones and zeros, you know? So they, they didn't even put names in there. They, they just converted it as a, some sort of bit, you know, like, is this person male or female? Uh, is the person earn above $50,000 or less than 50,000? Do they have a college degree? Yes or no, you know? So they, they, the more they got it into uh, kind of a, a binary pattern, the higher accuracy they were able to get. So kind of like changing the feature form, the topology of the feature was necessary to get the higher accuracy. Um, We talked about ethics and with deep learning, it seems like that giving uh, rules to the deep learning like say like with an expert system, you can give them rules like a Bayesian network where you just go down a tree and if the probability is greater than a threshold, then you go one way of the branch versus another. And, but you could kind of program some of the code to have certain ethics based on the rules. Um, whereas in deep learning, it seems like it's just looking for a signal. When it finds a signal, it uh, has and now an out, out, outcome and uh, or an output and then it reacts to that how do you program ethics into the deep learning or handle the issue of ethics in deep learning um, well when it comes to if it comes, when it comes to sexism and racism you can train deep nets that um, purposely forget features that are correlated with that. But one of the issues with deep learning, we showed it with our bachelor model, is it can still learn things you don't want it to, like a genetic bias. So that surprises people when we demonstrate that our bachelorette model, or our bachelor model model learned a genetic bias. And so ethics with AI is kind of a, it's a touchy topic because it's something that's not well understood, and it's kind of a moving goalpost. Because you can't do something with AI good, even if it's not technical. Well, um, I like in the case of uh, this uh, crime assessment software, they were the the uh, writer was quick to point out that the ACL picked up on it because. The data correlated 
uh, low income with crime propensity for crime. So the areas that had low income, had higher violence, more domestic disturbances, more violent type of crimes. And so uh, it was looking at certain key uh, indicators. And if it saw that you're low income and you were homeless, you know, you're profiled automatically as uh, having a propensity for crime, you know. So, and that was in the data. So that it just found that signal. It correlated to it statistically. I mean, uh, but politically it wasn't very popular. So, you know, it brought in a a legal uh, backlash, you know, against it. Yeah. A lot of, it's surprising how many AI implementers are very naive when it comes to ethics. That's an example that someone should have thought about beforehand. And, uh, but we see that it's surprising how many companies you see that show up in the news for having a racist model or a sexist model where they're not thinking about it. And that, so that's a problem. At higher view, we were thinking about it six years ago before we even started. Like years before we started, we were all, already thinking about it. Like, you know, what are all the different ways that this model can cause issues and be sexist and racist and have these ethical considerations? Okay. Uh, thanks for clarifying that, because that was kind of from our last discussion. That was something that I wanted to talk a little bit more about, because you had brought up the issue of ethics. Uh, one other thing I'd like to talk about is um, you, you mentioned that that um, you could do more in a day on a on a, on an area that was fast growth, a fast fast growth sector, than probably a data scientist could do in a year. Could you explain more about what that means? Yeah, so we're finding when it comes to industry applications, the models are much more sophisticated than any data scientist is typically prepared to handle. So an example of that would be if I'm trying to predict the price of a home, I can look at the description on the property. And for a data scientist, scientists, that's enough. They'll start there. They'll use the description and they'll predict the price of the home. Or they might look at structured data. Look at structured data. But if I tell the data scientists they need to look at all the data that matters, and it turns out that all the data that matters includes structured data, it includes satellite data, it includes Google Street View data, it includes data in the home, a lot of data scientists aren't very familiar with deep learning. This is a new skill set for them. They haven't found um, a company willing to fund their tuition on the topic. And for the model I just described, where you have different types of images, most data scientists in the market would see that as blue sky development. They would have no clear path for delivering value with that type of problem. And so what ends up happening is they you have to fund their tuition. So they would spend months, many months, trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And then once they've solved it, they need to figure out how to deploy it and hand it off to engineering. And we would argue that the chances of them solving that problem within 12 months are low for data scientists who have not previously shipped deep learning applications into production. 
Um, yeah, I, I talked to a, a, a data scientist who he's got uh, degrees from Texas A&M, uh, Harvard, he's working on one from Columbia. And uh, I said, you know, I know you got these advanced degrees, you know, he's got master's degrees in data science from, but how are you doing on your deep learning? And he's like, well, I'm taking classes on it. And uh, he says he's coding in Python. He's never coded in Python before. So he's got to learn Python, which I don't know Python. I know C sharp, but I, I hear that Python is like basically like VB, but it's huge. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't yet built a deep learning solution that's industrial level where he's getting charging the customer for it. Yeah. So I have to agree with you that deep learning is very difficult to implement. Well, the, the other thing I didn't even hit on is you have a hobbyist understanding of deep learning. So that would be GPU, maybe on your home PC. But then you have the enterprise level of deep learning understanding, and that's where you're solving huge data and the vast majority of data science that are working on deep learning to enterprises and if they did that would be And you're saying but, that your uh, company uh, does that? It, it has basically you found a way we, to uh, build an interface, do a bridge that will allow you to. So we've, we've automated mm -hmm. that. Yeah, we've automated that process. We have our own private data center. So we take care of the hardware component. And what we found is the vast majority of data scientists are actually not qualified to have an opinion on a model architecture or on a training strategy or a lot of these different features that a lot of data scientists will use to train deep learning models. And so we've automated that pipeline. And so what that allows us to do is by removing all of the data science decisions, an engineer can design a very, very complicated problem that the majority of data scientists would not know how to solve and they could solve it on their own. And with a lot of our problems, we're looking at a training cycle that is about 24 hours. So given a brand new problem that an engineer can set up, we can give them a solution that's ready to go to production. Could you, um, one thing I was thinking about today is, you know, when I was talking to uh, the, the uh, deep learning expert, he was saying, you know, no deep learning can do real-time training. It can't take feedback. Like uh, it can, it can. Uh, you can get a, a a pass or fail, or you can get a low percentage of confidence on your deep learning model, and then that tells you, oh, well, you need to train more. Or you need there's some edge cases that you've missed. Uh, 
but it can't continuously learn. Do you, do you have a way, have you thought of a way to implement continuous uh, learning into the net? Like, uh, like you were talking like uh, a child where it discovers something new and asks for feedback. You tell it, okay, this is a ball. And it says, okay, I know what that label is now. From now on, when I see that, I know that that's a ball. Uh, have you thought of something where uh, it can do more continuous learning? So our customers can manage their continuous learning deployments for known labels. So if I had a model that was trained to tell the difference between a cat and a dog, and I have a million images, a million and a hundred thousand images, they can trigger retraining events where they'll retrain the model, retrain the model, and then they'll redeploy onto the new model endpoint. But maybe the thing that he's sitting on for deep learning to understand a new label, so a label that you did not previously know. So let's say if I understand cat and dog, now you introduce the concept of a ball into my workflow to automatically figure out that there is a new item here and to begin predicting that item without a human labeling it, that's been a challenge for deep learning in the past. But we're finding that with unsupervised deep learning, it's pretty clear when new topics are found. And so the idea of having a deep net that is dynamically segmenting and isolating new topics, um, it, it's that, that process is becoming a little bit more, it's becoming more straightforward than it has been. Um, so, so we don't have a system where you can teach it like a child, but we see daylight on systems where they could learn in real time based on a live audio feed or a live video feed where it's constantly learning and you're not actually doing these training events. You're just interacting with the system visually. Hey ben, you're breaking up pretty bad. Audio. I don't know if there's something on your mic that's causing it, uh, but it's getting distorted oh. pretty heavy. Yeah, let me change it. Kind of reminds me of the talking. Yeah, let me yeah, change no, it back. Back to the future. <laughs> well, um, just a second, I'll... Is that oh, yeah, better? A hundred times better. Yeah, you're coming across really good. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Because it just, was just distorting to the point where I couldn't understand what you're saying. Uh, well, now, one of the things that I was thinking about, too, is, you know, deep learning is great for uh, complex things. It, it, it can find signals. So whatever it's looking for and uh, it pays attention to, it finds that signal. Um, how about interactions? Like we were talking about, you know, a man comes into a gas station, you know, it detects uh, he has a weapon or he doesn't have a weapon. Uh, and if he does, it identifies what he's going to do, you know. So he doesn't uh, send off an alarm if he has a, a carrier permit and, uh, you know, he's carrying a sidearm. How do you... How does the how do you get the the signal so it doesn't go off on things like that, or do you let it go off and then you have a human operator take a look and see what's going on? 
so in that scenario, we would say you let it go off and then you've got what we would consider to be business logic where it responds and, you know, looks up the individual, looks up their face and does some downstream reaction where they understand the domain. Some of the AI applications, we see it as a frontline filter where it's filtering information downstream that could be consumed by a different AI system. Hey, take a look at this. Hey, do this. Um, that That's one way you can think of some of these AI systems as routers or filters where they can feed other systems. And some of those systems could just be pure business logic. So how would it, it uh, implement that? Would it be kind of a, a control system? Uh, it has a, a looping logic and then kind of if then else type of logic that says if this situation then do this or what would you say um you might have an ai system that's looking for people uh maybe adult men and that system might then feed images or frames of people to another system that's specifically looking for signs of a, a gun or it can still carry. And then that system might feed another system where it attempts to do a face lookup or an ID. And that would be cross-reference with whether or not you're allowed to have a concealed carry. And so you, you kind of have these sequential systems. And eventually you get into the weeds where it's, it's the police system or it's the actual end use case. That might be very custom where there's lots of business logic that might look at what time of day is it and, you know, is this person allowed to have this and um, what's our confidence that we found the right person? Because that's the other issue is you might have low confidence on the face lookup. And if you think that they have a concealed weapon permit, but you have low confidence that you found the right person, then that might trigger some different business logic where maybe you maybe you would start doing some up resolution on the camera or you if it can zoom you would then trigger the optical try to do some a deeper dive so the issue for ai is you don't have knowledge that has to be built around these ai systems i see so you just have the pipeline and uh, and then you work through the pipeline uh, to a, an eventual outcome. That's what kind of what I was thinking too is that you have subsystems, and then you have higher level systems above the subsystem, and it's making decisions based on the outcomes of those lower subsystems, and they might be. Uh, similar systems or they might be separate in, in different areas. So, you know, it might be like a restful call or something to external system. But uh, together, they kind of work uh, through uh, an intelligent network to get to a conclusion. Well, yeah. I know you said uh, you wanted to keep this to be a short conversation, but we got kind of carried away on some of the longer discussions about the ethics, but, uh, you know, it's, if, if AI is going to be used, it's got to be safe, right? 
Hopefully. It, it, that depends on who's implementing it. So there, there's a lot of AI applications where you have the good side of it and then you have the bad side. And um, there's a lot of concerns that we're going to be seeing a lot more of the bad examples of AI in the market. Seems like, though, if you, I was uh, listening to Rodney, uh, yeah, Rodney Brooks, the inventor of iRobot, uh, Rumba. Uh, yeah. And his, he said that if robots are not safe, they will be immediately rejected. Uh, consumers will they'll put up red flags, you know. I mean, there were cases where robots did kill people in manufacturing environments where you know, workers went into the robot chamber, didn't have the machine turned off. It's, it was active. It started to move. It, you know, it's strong, hit, hit them, killed them. Uh, and that was started. He started the Heartland Project. So, you know, it was it was capable of sensing, you know, if a human being was close and, and it would respond to that human being socially and also had enough sensors to know uh, when to stop, you know, so it wouldn't cause injury. And it seems like AI maybe has to be somewhat like that too, because you have a rogue AI and, uh, you know, it could uh, panic a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you're, you are going to have autonomous warfare applications where AI is intentionally doing harm. Um, whether that's the U.S., China, Russia, or Israel, that's something that you'll definitely be seeing out in the wild. Yeah, uh, last time we were, you finished with that uh, idea, and uh, I was going to say, you know, I, ta- I type back to you, you know, one of the advantages of a soldier is he has to go through military, uh, U- UCMJ, mil- uh, Uniform Military Code of Justice, or or code, I can't remember the acronym, but he has a certain ethic code that he has to maintain, you know. Uh, and I guess we were talking more in life and death conflicts where, you know, the other person is in a combative mode and you're in a combative mode. And now it's just a, you know, sheer adaption to see who survives. Um, and your point was, is in that scenario, the machine's going to be so much faster and decisive uh, at, uh, you know, coming up with the uh, algorithms that, that we wouldn't stand a chance. Uh, and uh, I think that was what you were trying to say. Yeah. Like, if you imagine the scenario where any military-aged male holding an, a- an AK-47 machine gun is automatically engaged you know, whether it's a turret or a drone or some automated AI system, that would be pretty straightforward. And where the AI systems would have very high confidence that this is what they were seeing. Um, and I, I think you're going to see systems like that start showing up where the argument is they can react faster and they can re- reduce civilian casualties. So the likelihood of them making a mistake during a stressful encounter is reduced. But we can. Uh, another big part of autonomous war is information, information processing. So your ability to analyze drone footage, 
will just increase thanks to AI. So you can consume a lot more data and have actionable insights on that data, whether you're trying to find a suspect or, you know, engage with a target, AI will accelerate that yeah, time it, to respond. It still goes through a pipeline. So like you were saying earlier, it's still going to have to go through pipeline to make a decision. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, it was interesting that Trump, when he uh, called off the attack on Iran, the point that he made was 150 human casualties would occur, one drone casualty, which cost millions of dollars, and he chose, you know, to save human lives. Um, so, I mean, you know, the era of technology and warfare is here, and, the, you know, that calculus of deciding uh, will is already in play, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I uh, appreciate you coming on board and and uh, explaining more of that. I just wanted to have one last question for you. What do you see as really cool with uh, AI? Like something you've done that's like, wow, that was really cool. Um, a, a current project I'm working on is uh, teaching AI to play the Xbox, so to play Call of Duty where the the Xbox gaming console doesn't know that it's being controlled by an external AI computer. And that, that project, I'm pretty excited about it because the data is really fascinating. Just the amount of data that we're capturing and the rate that we're capturing it. And then also the fact that you could play a live system. So you're essentially cheating online in a live environment thanks to AI, but there's no way to catch it because you're not modifying the memory. You're not modifying the game. AI is reacting to an HDMI feed and it's injecting a USB controller feed directly into the game. So that that's a project that I'm personally excited about. And then you've heard about deep fakes on the news. Yes. Um, one of the things I realized is today, no matter how good, so if you sent me a deep fake and you were asking me, hey, I, I can't tell if this is a deep fake. I'm worried that it might be, but I need, you know, I, I need to find the best person in the world to do forensics on this deep fake to tell me if it's real or not. And let's say it's so good, you can't tell. So you as a human, you really can't tell. Pixel by pixel, there's, no, there's nothing in the face. There's nothing to really tip you off that this is fake. One of the fascinating things is a deep fake today will actually have no pulse. Oh, really? They won't have a they won't have a heartbeat. But the unfortunately with AI, as soon as you announce that fact, it becomes a new point of vulnerability. Where so today, like literally today, right now, talking to you, I can guarantee I can catch any deep fake in the world by measuring whether or not it has a heartbeat, which you can do with, Im- with video processing. And so a fun piece would be to demonstrate that I can produce a deep fake that has a heartbeat. So like doing an AI project and demonstrating that, look, here's a deep fake, it has a heartbeat. That would be a fun geek project to do. It doesn't really help society, but it just demonstrates that no matter what you say, 
if the people that are on the other side of it know, they have a reaction to that. So it's like spam realizing that Viagra is predictive. You can immediately use that information. And if you're making deep fakes and you realize I'm going to measure heart rate from your deep fake, you can now re start reacting to that. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game. Have you done anything uh, with uh, science, with the uh, deep learning? I know one that they were trying to do was quantum uh, prediction of entanglement. I know that's kind of uh, nothing, out there, but yeah, you know it's kind of interesting. Nothing with uh, we've we've had invitations to do some things with academic institutions around audio, like predicting whether or not a crowd is panicking from audio or. Things like that. Those projects are pretty straightforward, but nothing, nothing like what you mentioned. Well, I that's uh, that's cool. I uh, was thinking where you're going with uh, video analysis, and uh, you know, uh, one that Google said that they were going to do was they were going to analyze video and start getting the content. So they would, you know, it would basically translate all of the content or what the characters were doing. It, it would analyze and then create a script of what they were doing. And then that would become more searchable so that the videos became more searchable. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's a pretty custom application. So we we wouldn't be involved. Yeah, you don't want to do anything custom. Like that. You want to do uh, you want to do more generalized and then that let other third parties do the custom work. Yeah. Okay, Ben. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully the audio wasn't too bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was breaking up, but I think 